The following sermon was delivered on Sunday, March 1st, 2020, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Andover by Gail Forsythe Vale. The title of the sermon is Leadership with Integrity. Here begins the sermon. So I just want to begin by acknowledging that this is a a challenging time we're in. There is so much to be concerned about in the public sphere, along with the personal challenges that we each navigate. So just thanking you for finding the time to be here this morning and to be in community at a time when we all need that so much. This is March 1st, the beginning of Women's History Month. Yesterday, February 29th, was the end of Black History Month. Both months are about reclaiming lost, erased history and discovering what it has to tell us. This morning, I'm going to reclaim a largely erased piece of our Unitarian Universalist history from the Unitarian side of our heritage. It's a story of Fanny Barrier Williams, speaker, writer, social activist, labor activist, and champion of black women, friend of Frederick Douglass, of Booker T. Washington, of Ida B. Wells, faithful member of All Souls Church Unitarian in Chicago. She was once, 100 years ago, among the most widely known black women in the United States. Has anybody ever heard of her? There you go. We're going to unerase her this morning. Fanny Barrier was born in 1855 in the village of Brockport, New York, which is just west of Rochester. It's near Lake Ontario in western New York, and it's a village. It was then. It still is. It's small. She was born just a few years ahead of the Civil War. Her father, Anthony, was a barber and a part-time coal merchant and a lay leader in the First Baptist Church in Brockport. Her mother, Harriet, taught Bible classes at the church, and she cared for Fanny and her two older siblings, Ella and George. Both parents had been born free, and both were educated. They loved good books, and they were community-oriented. Both were biracial and light-skinned, but were in those days considered Negro. Theirs might have been the only black family in Brockport, but the barriers were accepted as social equals by the white members of the community, and this was not very far from Rochester where the schools were segregated. So this was, Brockport was kind of a, uh, kind of an island in the middle of western New York. Fanny writes of an idyllic childhood. She writes, Ours was the only colored family in the church, in fact, the only one in the town for many years. And certainly there could not have been a relationship more cordial, respectful, and intimate than that of our family with the white people of this community. We three children were sent to school as soon as we were old enough and remained there until we graduated. During our school days, our associates, schoolmates, and companions were all white boys and girls. These relationships were natural, spontaneous, and free from all restraint. We went freely to each other's houses, to parties, socials, and joined on equal terms with all school entertainments. With perfect comradeship, we suffered no discrimination on account of color or previous condition and lived in blissful ignorance of the fact that we were practicing the unpardonable sin of social equality. 
Growing up, Fanny knew Frederick Douglass, who lived in Rochester and was well aware of his work against slavery and his support for equality for black people and women's suffrage. She became an accomplished pianist. This is a very talented person. Played, she played the music at the services at First Baptist. She loved painting. She was an extraordinary academic student as well. In 1870, at the age of 16, she graduated from Brockport Normal School, which was a teacher training program. Um, that school is now part of the State University of New York system. Um, she was the first black person ever to do so. In her graduation speech, she spoke about her curiosity about the expansive nature of the world and her desire to explore beyond her town. She wanted to go out into the world and do something large and out of the ordinary. And that's when she began to discover what it meant to be black in the United States, especially in the South. Fanny Barrier had heard about teachers, both black and white, who were going south to teach formerly enslaved people, and she looked for an opportunity to join that movement of teachers. Her sister-in-law's brother was a principal of a school in Hannibal, Missouri, which is kind of just south of St. Louis on the, on the Mississippi, where that's where, yeah, that's the Mark Twain place, Hannibal. This, the schools were segregated there, and Missouri was very much of a, um, a segregated state. Her, um, her brother-in-law invited her to teach at the newly opened all-black Douglasville School, and after graduation, she went. It was in Missouri that Barrier began to be race-conscious. Prejudice and injustice were entrenched there, and everyday life was segregated. She made less money than her white counterparts. For the first time in her life, her educated upper-class background was irrelevant. She was racialized and considered inferior. By 1877, she had had enough, and she left Missouri for Washington, D.C., joining her sister, who had begun teaching in the colored schools there two years earlier. And Washington was considered South in those days. Washington, D.C. was home to a large group of elite, educated black people, a black aristocracy, if you will, leaders in education, business, medicine, law, journalism. Many had been influential abolitionists before the Civil War, and they were, by and large, women's rights advocates. By virtue of education and previous friendship with Frederick Douglass, Barrier and her sister Ella were able to find an entree into a relatively closed social circle. This extraordinary group of black leaders held literary gatherings. They talked about Emerson and Shakespeare and, and, and Dickens and, and so forth. There were musical concerts. There were parties and galas. And it was at one of these parties that she met S. Lang Williams, a native of Michigan and a patent office employee who would in time become her husband. In Washington, D.C., she became part of a literary society that offered addresses and academic papers about the heritage of black Americans and the social, economic, and political issues the black community faced. Boarding with her sister at the home of a prominent black family and able to make enough money as a teacher to be self-supporting, she soaked in what Washington had to offer to a young black woman. She became very aware of herself not only as a black person, but also as a member of the social elite. She, and that 
point in her life embraced both her racial and her class identities. After a while, she realized her heart was not in teaching, and she decided to pursue art. She found a white art teacher in Washington willing to teach her, but when she she went for her first lesson, she found that she was completely surrounded by screens. This was the only way that the teacher and the other students would allow her to be present in the art class. Feeling humiliated, she left the class and shortly thereafter left Washington to study in Boston at the New England Conservatory of Music School of Fine Arts. Surely in Boston, she would not have to suffer the racial degradation she had encountered in Missouri and Washington. In Boston, she began in a program to study drawing, painting, and music. The conservatory founder had been an abolitionist before the war and had ensured that black students could enroll in this new conservatory. But Southern students began to enroll in the conservatory and they threatened that they and their tuition dollars would withdraw if they had to study with a black student. Dollars won out over principals and Fanny Barrier was asked to withdraw from the school. Her idealist vision of racial equality in the North was shattered. Disheartened but wiser, she moved back to Washington. In 1887, Fanny Barrier married S. Lang Williams at a wedding in Brockport, where their family members were the only black people present. The couple moved to Chicago, where he began a law practice. Now, there was in Chicago an elite group of black leaders kind of like there had been in Washington, only with a little bit of a difference. Many of them were veterans of the resistance to the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law and the Underground Railway. The Williamses found a social circle among this group of people. She became a well-known portrait artist making money which supplemented family income. And it's really interesting because there was a newspaper that did a kind of a profile of her as a portrait artist and the person that she was por- doing the portrait of when the reporter did it was James Villa Blake, who was a, a Unitarian minister and the author of one of the readings in the back of our gray hymnal. So just a little interesting side note. Um, her husband co-founded the Prudence Crandall Literary Club, a club modeled after the one in Washington for mutual improvement and mental culture of its intended members who were educated elite black people in Chicago. And this club provided a venue for Fanny Barrier Williams to emerge as a leader, building on the skills and wisdom she had already acquired and putting her on the path to what would be her life's work. One of the most important sections of the club was a women's group. The group met and heard lectures, readings, and presentations from prominent black women. And over time, the group developed a collective black women's political voice. So they developed that as a group in this club. Barrier Williams solidified her understanding of herself as both black and a woman in a culture which devalued both identities. The group began a campaign to garner white press coverage for the issues that faced black women. And she's learning skills like crazy as this is happening, right? It was in this time period that Barrier Williams came in contact with some of the influential white parishioners of All Souls Unitarian in Chicago and their justice-oriented minister, Jenkin Lloyd-Jones. Describing herself as a free thinker religiously, she had kind of left her Baptist roots behind her. 
Barrier Williams was attracted to Unitarian theology, but also to the fact that the church espoused racial equality at a time when that was not what churches typically did, and the church championed the rights of women. It was a racially integrated church, which allowed her social contacts and even friendships with white movers and shakers in the city. And it was here that she met Celia Parker Woolley, a white woman with whom she shared visions of justice for poor women, black and white, and the two formed a lifelong friendship. The congregation's minister, Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, became her friend and her lifelong supporter. And Barrier Williams began to understand the value of cross-racial organizing in gaining attention among the political class and gaining political power. She, became, she began to understand the necessity of gaining political power in order to get things done. In 1888, Barrier Williams was a founding member of the Illinois Women's Alliance, which was a cross-racial group that formed deep connections with the labor movement. So we've got Fanny Barrier Williams looking at women's issues, the issues of black people, and the issues of labor. Through her influence, the labor movement in Chicago embraced black women's concerns. This was not a typical thing happening across the country. Those fleeing racial violence and lynching in the South and coming to Chicago were facing both housing and employment discrimination, and the black women faced the additional hurdle of gender discrimination. For a number of years, this organization, the Illinois Women's Alliance, was one of the most powerful lobbying groups on behalf of labor in the city of Chicago. Barrier Williams served as its vice president and was on the committee that worked on health and hygiene issues for poor people. During this time, she learned new skills, petitioning and negotiating with the male leaders of the city. Always at ease in social situations, she had a real gift for that. She learned to use her social skills to cultivate relationships with white women so that black women's issues could become part of the discourse. Health care for black people was a major concern for Barrier Williams. There was a shortage of black hospitals and black nurses in a city where the hospitals that served white people were not often willing to treat blacks. She set out to, to build a hospital to serve black people and a related nursing school that would train black nurses, providing for both health and employment needs for the community. And when she began her fundraising for this among both black and white elites to build the hospital, she got some pushback from the older generation of organizers who believed that integration was the highest goal and that to establish a racially segregated hospital was to move backwards. Barrier Williams was practical above all else and agreed that the hospital, while located near the black community and staffed largely by black nurses, would serve anyone who needed help. In 1891, the Provident Hospital and Nursing School opened. It was the first African-American owned and operated hospital in the United States. It is still there. It is still serving the community. It's a public hospital today. Barrier Williams had by then added fundraising to her, for, fundraising for social justice to her skill set. In 1892 and 93, Chicago prepared for a great World's Fair to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing and the beginning of the colonization of the Americas. And today, we might not think that event so worthy of celebration, but in 1892, 1893, it was a big thing, right? 
the, the planning team for this World's Fair was all white. And Barrier Williams made a public complaint about the composition of this planning team, stating that black women had much to celebrate about their progress, too, especially since the end of slavery. And after some significant public pressure, she was appointed to the Board of Lady Managers for the exhibition (laughs) and eventually was named as a speaker for the World's Congress of Representative Women. At the same time, Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, Celia Parker Woolley, and others associated with All Souls Unitarian were planning a world's parliament, the first world's parliament of religions to happen in 1893, just after the World's Fair. It would bring together people from different religious traditions all over the world to share their faith and find common ground. And Barrier Williams was given a speaking slot. When she spoke, she chastised white Christianity for being a tool of slaveholders, saying no class of American citizens has had so much vitiating nonsense preached to them than the colored people of this country. She called for U.S. American churches to open their Bibles a little wider and truly practice Christianity by treating black people equitably. Publication of excerpts from this speech pushed her quickly into national prominence. And she became a sought-after speaker on the lecture circuit, sometimes pairing a lecture with a piano concert. She was a pretty talented person. Barrier Williams became a nationally known reformer, pushing hard for women's rights and racial rights and justice. She was the only black woman invited and speaking at at an 80th birthday party for Elizabeth Cady Stanton because by that time the, the women's suffrage movement had become largely a movement of white women. But she spoke at the 80th birthday party for Elizabeth Cady Stanton where all the luminaries of the women's suffrage movement were present, Susan B. Anthony, um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, all of the luminaries of that movement were present and they had invited Fanny, Fanny Barrier Williams to address them. An unpleasant interlude occurred when Celia Parker Woolley nominated her for membership in the prestigious Chicago Women's Club. After a nasty and very public two-year battle to integrate the club, she became the first black woman accepted into the club. In those years, she worked with Woolley on the development of Frederick Douglass House, an integrate, racially integrated settlement house and social service center for poor women in Chicago. She herself founded the Phyllis Wheatley Home, a place for black women to stay when they first moved to the city, especially coming from the South, where they could be safe while looking for employment. She was ever practical. She worked with businesses as best she could, asking them to train black women as stenographers. She had a lot of no's in that. That was one of the the pieces from her autobiography in that work. But she did, she was persistent, and she had the contacts to be able to get those appointments to at least ask a question. Ever practical, she viewed nursing and stenography as two solid employment pathways for black women. She advocated also for professionalizing domestic service, training young black women so they would have household management skills and could approach um, domestic service employment in a way that would not leave them vulnerable to exploitation. She was really aware of what the open pathways were for women, for black women especially in the city of Chicago for employment. So nursing, stenography, um, domestic service, and, and teaching. It was pretty limited... Um, set of options. 
In time, she became a national voice as a journalist, writing for the Boston-based African-American publication Women's Era, and later for New York and Chicago um, publications. Just a little bit of side note, the founder of the Boston-based African-American publication Women's Era was also a Unitarian and a member of All Souls New York, ultimately. Nice to know that. As she moved into her later years, race relations in the United States grew steadily worse. So she's working, 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 and race relations as she is working grew steadily worse. The rebirth of the KKK in the early 20th century and the film Birth of a Nation accelerated the violence and racial terrorism in our country against black people. Mass migration of black people fleeing the, the racial terrorism in the South led to the acceleration of racist policies and practices in the North. Black people were terrorized and lynched, black homes bombed, and black businesses burned in Barry Williams' own state of, of Illinois and in other northern states between 1917 and 1919. A white supremacist, Woodrow Wilson, occupied the White House. Just saying this is where things were 100 years ago. Toward the end of her public life, Barrier Williams became involved in a huge debate among black leaders about how black people might best move forward given what the circumstances were. There was a debate going on between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. It was really clear that to some people, the newer generation of black leadership, that Booker T. Washington's model, which was education, um, particularly in practical skills, was not moving the needle on racial equity. Um, so she was actually friendly with both of them, and but she she supported um, Booker T. Washington. That was kind of the generational place that she had been as a leader, and she found herself under attack by a new generation of black leaders who were tired of waiting for equality, and they were tired of the narrative that a black person needs to needs to earn human rights and social equality. Barrier Williams continued to speak and write to work for employment opportunities for black women in Chicago, but she was getting older. She suffered a number of personal losses, the deaths of her husband and partner, her own mother and father, her brother and her nephew, and also of her mentor and friend, Frederick, Frederick Douglass, who was almost like a parent to her. She lost all of those people in a relatively short period of years. And because of her own declining health, she left public life in 1926 and went back to her beloved Brockport to live with and care for her sister Ella, who became blind. Fanny Barrier Williams died in 1944 at the age of 89. So... What have we to learn from lifting up this almost forgotten story of Fanny Barrier Williams? Alongside knowing about an interesting Unitarian forebear who lived and worked at the intersection of racial justice, women's rights, and labor rights, what are we to take from this today? Barrier Williams used every bit of her experience every bit of her mind and heart and creative genius and social skills and all, of, all that she had, all that she acquired to develop the skills that, that helped her make a difference in the world. Although she began and lived as a person with class and education privilege, she did not turn her back on the black women who so desperately needed a champion. She had an entree 
into the circles of power to be that champion, and she did not neglect ever to use what she had. She cultivated relationships and plunged herself into challenges, learning skills as she went. But most of all, she modeled leadership that was accountable to those on the margins. Her life and leadership had integrity as she pursued power. There was no mincing words about that. She pursued power not for its own sake, but for the sake of what she saw as her mission and purpose in life. Fanny Barrier Williams labored to ameliorate some of the forces that are still present in our time 100 years later. White supremacy, poverty, inequality, racism, and sexism. And understood, long before there were words about intersectionality, she understood the relationship among those things. She worked with others to do her part, paying attention to the practical needs of marginalized people while also raising a prophetic voice. She did both, attending to practical needs and raising a prophetic voice. So I'd like, I told her story because I'd like us to be inspired. Even when the forces arrayed against justice seem insurmountable, even when there's a white supremacist in the White House, to go forth and to meet the challenges of our own time knowing that we can't fix it tomorrow. <laughs>